Well, good morning, everyone. So we continue our study today in the Gospel according to Luke. Our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 9, um, verses 28 to 36. So would you read with me? Luke 9, beginning at verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves. They did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Our next reading is from Isaiah chapter 42 and beginning at verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeons those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Warren, and thank you, Joanna. Well, welcome again. We're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke, and I invite you, if you don't have a Bible with you, go grab one or pull out your smart device. We'll be in Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 28 to 36 this morning. Uh, I want to thank Stephen for his message last week. If you didn't get a chance to hear it, perhaps due to some of the technical difficulties we were having, I encourage you, go back and have a listen. I really appreciated how he brought God's word to us, talked about the nature of a suffering Messiah and what it means to follow him. As we come uh, to this text, uh, I was reminded that in seminary they taught us you should start your sermon with something that's engaging or something of a hook. And usually you want to pull out a funny story or an anecdote, uh, but I don't have a funny story this morning. I don't, have, I don't have a little amusing anecdote from my life in my house. Uh, this is one of those weeks where you just feel like you've seen too much. I don't know about you, but I feel like I have seen so much in seven days uh, it's very hard to even comprehend and to get my mind around it. I've seen people falling out of the sky. I've seen babies getting passed over walls, separated from their parents. I've seen people being shot at. I've seen protests. I've seen people in shops just being angry and yelling at other people for who knows why. I've heard the sound of mothers crying and weeping and praying. I've seen too much. 
and I trust that you've seen many of these things and more in your own life. How grateful I am that we come to this text this morning. Because if there was ever a week where we needed a glimpse of the glory of God, it's this one. It's not that things can't get worse, they, they might. But we need to be reminded. We need to see Jesus. We need to see him for who he is. And by God's grace, this text affords us that opportunity this morning. Uh, I'm going to uh, uh, ask uh, Chris at the back to run through the slides for me because uh, some of them haven't appeared on my, on my little device here. Um, but we open to Luke chapter 9, verses 28 and 36. And the question that I want to start with today is, what do you think would happen if you really saw Jesus? What would you see? If you really saw Jesus, what would that mean for you? We come to a text that is really unlike virtually any other passage, any other writing we have in ancient literature. It's, it's unique in the Bible. It's, it, it's unique across other religions. This is a passage, an account that is, for good reason, impressed upon the minds of the early church and upon the minds of the writers of the Gospels. The text we're talking about is known as the Transfiguration. It's where the disciples are given a preview, as it were, of Jesus and his glory along with a whole host of other supernatural spiritual phenomena. But the question that we want to focus on today is what would we see if we really saw Jesus? I've titled this message, The Privilege of Jesus. Yes, it is a privilege for us to know Jesus. Absolutely, we'll talk about that some more. But Jesus has a particular and a unique privilege himself in revealing the way of salvation. It's because Jesus alone reveals the glory of God. Jesus alone enables us, fallen men and women, men and women under the curse of sin and death, Jesus alone enables us to see God for who he really is. That's gonna be the focus of our time this morning. As we come to the scriptures today, I'm going to invite you to pray with me as we seek God's help and his blessing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you now and we ask that you might show us more of yourself today. Lord, we need it. We need to see it. We need to hear it. Father, would you revive our hearts as we come to the word? Thank you that no word of yours ever falls to the ground without accomplishing its purpose. And so, Lord, would you strengthen us, would you warm us, would you encourage us? May you brighten our countenance this morning as we contemplate the sun. It's in his name we pray, amen. The privilege of Jesus is that he reveals the glory of God to us. And this revelation, this revealing, is going to be likened in this passage to an exodus, a, a new exodus type event that Jesus is going to undergo. And we'll talk a bit more about that. But I want to begin by talking about some contextual features of this passage. This is so rich, and I encourage you, if you have a spare you know, 15 minutes, come back to this passage every day this week, just 15 minutes, sit with it, meditate on it, and let the Lord speak to you from it. But in terms of time and setting, Luke uniquely here notes the exact time period. He says eight days after Jesus had said this, which should leave us saying, what did he say? What he said was a renewed, a new, excuse me, revelation that was triggered by Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. You'll recall through the gospel, like some of the other gospels, this question begins to circulate at the onset of Jesus's ministry about who is he? What's his identity? What's he, what, what's he doing? What's he all about? Famously, early in chapter 9, we, we hear Herod himself asking the question, who is this Jesus? And there's some confusion. Is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? Who is he? Peter 
is the first human being in Luke's gospel to give the right answer, that he is God's Messiah. But as Stephen unpacked for us last week, this concept of the Messiah, the chosen, the anointed one, it carried with it so many expectations that Jesus quickly moves to clarify what kind of Messiah he will be. And he talks about being a Messiah who will suffer and who will die, who will be rejected by the leaders, the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, but then he will be raised to life. And it's eight days after he said this that this event takes place. Luke wants us to know that this is not some sort of imagining of the disciples. It's not a recurring dream that they experience, but it's an actual historical event. And so we're told in verse 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him, and he went up on a mountain to pray. And so the setting is laid for us here. It's not all of the disciples. It's kind of this inner circle, Peter, James, and John, those fishermen who left their boats to follow Christ. They go up on the mountain. They're literally doing what Jesus said to, they should do, which is to follow him. They've followed him up the mountain, and there Jesus is praying. Now, when Jesus prays, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, something significant is about to happen. And so this is the setting. The next feature you need to note is that there's reverberations throughout this passage, reverberations of the Old Testament, specifically the Exodus event in and of itself. There is this chorus of, of voices and this chorus of prophecy, this chorus of revelation that has gone before, which, which is almost bouncing off the walls, bouncing off the page, as we're about to see Jesus transfigured. In particular, Luke uses a word in verse 31 to describe the conversation that Jesus is having with Moses and Elijah. The word he uses is Exodus. This word occurs only three times in the New Testament. In Acts, it refers to the exodus of God's people out of Egypt. And the only other time it's referred to by the apostle Peter himself just before he references this account. There's words that could be used for departure and for leaving, but Jesus is speaking about an exodus. And so what this means is that in this conversation as Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah, he's talking about the culmination, the fulfillment of all that God had planned. It's going to be an exodus. And so that event is prominent here. As I mentioned, the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, by in terms of context, we, we need to understand Moses was a prophet like no other. Most of us don't think of Moses as a prophet. Most of us think of Moses and the Ten Commandments or, or Moses and the staff and, and causing the waters to spread. Moses who challenged Pharaoh. But we're told that there was nobody like Moses in the history of God dealing with his people because Moses spoke to God as one who spoke to him face to face. And in the mediator of a covenant, Moses establishes the people of God. He stands as a great priest. Moses was the one who would mediate in the tabernacle. And the other figure there is Elijah. Elijah himself, who, who did not face death but was caught up into heaven. And these two often summarizes the law and the prophets are standing witness, conversing with Jesus about this. And the last thing that you should note in terms of context is note the silence at the end. This event was so significant for the disciples. But they couldn't quite comprehend it. Unlike other places where Jesus tells them not to tell anybody, here we don't hear Jesus' voice telling them not to tell anyone. And Luke is leaving us with the impression that that this event was so significant, they just didn't know how to process it. They didn't know what to say. So with that, by way of introduction, we're gonna see really three things that are revealed when we look at Jesus through the light of this passage. In other words, we see Jesus in three ways. The first way we see him, when we see Jesus, we see a glimpse of the glory of God. A glimpse of the glory of God. The second thing we're going to see when we see Jesus is the promised redeemer. 
and deliverer. And the last thing we're going to see when we see Jesus in this passage is we're going to see the chosen servant of the Lord. Look with me now as we come to the text. We're going to see a glimpse of God's glory. We've already set the scene, verse 28, verse 29. As he was praying, while Jesus is praying, this is so important, while he's praying, the appearance of his face changed. Literally, the appearance of his face became other. It became different. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Luke is very careful in his language here. He doesn't describe Jesus as metamorphosizing into something else. He's not a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. No, no, no. There is a change in the appearance, a change in how he looks, and specifically two things are noted, his countenance and his clothing, his face and his apparel. These are the, th- these are the things that change. His face becomes as bright as a flash of lightning, a lightning. He's appearing in glorious splendor. This is significant. The sense here is that Jesus is appearing in his glorified state. There's a revelation here of who Jesus is, even though up to this point in time, the disciples have seen another man in flesh and bone. Another man that you might meet on the street. But here, something is revealed. The fact that his face changes says something to us. Again, hearkening back to Moses, you'll recall that after he would go and he would meet with God, and after he received the Ten Commandments and he came down the mountain, He had to put a veil over his face because his countenance was changed by being in the presence of God. And so the fact that Jesus' face here is appearing in glorious splendor, his face is changing, it shows this is someone who has perfect communion with God. This is someone who dwells with God. His clothes become bright as a flash of lightning. Clothes indicate often status. We do the same thing today. We show off our status by the clothing that we wear. Not too much different in that day. In Mark's account, he describes these clothes as so white that you couldn't bleach them any whiter. There was no bleach on earth that you could use to make them this white. So Jesus appears in power and he appears in purity showing a glimpse of the glory of God. This is so important because as we mentioned at the outset, you go through life, you don't see the glory of God, do you? A lot of people leaving the faith. A lot of people look around and they say, you know, I can't conclude that God's really here. I can't conclude that this Jesus was was anything other than just a guy with some nice ideas who ended up paying the ultimate price for them. And people yearn. They want to know. They want to see. They want to understand. But here the disciples are reminded that there's more to this Jesus than just gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the flesh and blood. There is a power. There is an authority. There is a glory that has been his from the beginning of time. And it is a glory that is exclusively his and exclusively belongs to him by virtue of his status as the son of God. And here for a brief moment, the curtain is pulled back. And his glory is seen and it is revealed. And it is so different, it is so brilliant, it is so glorious, the disciples never forgot it. Let me encourage you this morning, brothers and sisters, right now you may not see Jesus in glory because like Jesus suffered, his church is suffering. His church is persecuted. His church is destroyed, is killed, slaughtered, insulted, slandered, cast out. But one day, like him, the church will appear in radiant glory. 
we will reflect this kind of splendor. But right now, we don't see it, do we? So I beg of you, brothers and sisters, do not be confused. Though the glory be veiled, though it be hidden in weakness for this time, make no mistake, this Jesus is not one who is mired in weakness. This Jesus is one who is almighty and powerful. This Jesus did not come just out of the backwaters of Nazareth. This Jesus came from the halls of heaven where he currently sits and rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. And here, before he's about to make that journey, the disciples see it. You need to see this Jesus. You need to see in Jesus the glory of God. You need to behold in him this splendor. If you do not see this splendor, the incarnation will not make sense to you. You see, the love of God was not shown simply in what Jesus did on the cross. It was shown in that he took on flesh. That God would choose to submit himself to this kind of life. To this kind of humiliation. To the fleshliness, to the earthiness, to the dirt and the dust that you and I inhabit. That he would choose that shows the glory of God. We love to say, prove it to me. We love to say, show me. The Bible says Jesus will show you. He will show the world. He will show the scoffers. He will show the nations as is prophesied in Psalm 2. He will show them his glory and his splendor. They will see it, and as Paul would write, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But here they got a preview. Lord, would you give us a preview? May you be exalted in our hearts. May we see something of the splendor of your beauty and your majesty. May we behold the face of Christ. If you've contemplated Jesus, if you've come to Jesus and gazed upon him and you have not seen the glory of God, you have not looked hard enough. There is power and there is splendor in Jesus. But the glimpse is fleeting. Not only do we see a glimpse of God's glory when we look at Jesus, we also see the promised Redeemer. Look at me at verse 30. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah have been gone for a long time. And here, they appear in glory. It's not the same glory that Jesus had, but, but the fact that they are there, these two pinnacles and pillars of God's dealing with his people Israel. They're standing there talking with Jesus. Why Moses and why Elijah? We can only speculate. <laughs> As we said at the outset, many people say these are two witnesses, two witnesses, the law and the prophets testifying to Jesus' work. That's probably true in some regard. Some commentators have pointed out, interestingly enough, that there's only one place in the Old Testament where Moses and Elijah appear in the same prophetic offering. It's in Malachi chapter 4. That great passage which talks about what will happen before the day of the Lord comes. References Moses and Elijah. Some have said Moses represents God speaking to his people through a prophet and Elijah represents the new age to come. Interestingly enough, neither Moses nor Elijah had graves in Israel. We're told that when Moses died, the Lord buried his body, which, which sparked a whole range of literature throughout the history of Israel as to what exactly happened to the body of Moses. 
There wasn't a grave for Elijah either because we know that he was caught up into heaven in the chariot. These two servants of God are speaking with Jesus. And here and here alone, we get a little taste of what the conversation was like. They spoke about his departure, literally his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah have an audience with Jesus who's being transfigured on the mountain during a time of prayer. And you wonder, what are they talking about? They talk about his departure. This is connected with what was revealed before. You see, Jesus had been telling us that being the Messiah wasn't exactly what everyone else thought being a Messiah should be. It wasn't about triumph and conquering through military might. It was about suffering and dying and redeeming. And here we're told that Jesus understands, as do Moses and Elijah, that he's about to bring to fulfillment his exodus. You say, what's the significance of the exodus? The exodus event is what constituted the people of God in the Old Testament. It's where God claimed the nation of Israel for himself. You see, as the Bible tells us, the people of God were slaves in Egypt. They were oppressed. Even though God had promised them something, they had yet to inherit it. And in, in their oppression, they're crying out to God, and God sent them a deliverer, Moses. And Moses, through a series of confrontations with Pharaoh, brought plagues down upon the land of Egypt. And that last plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn son, initiated the exodus. When the firstborn son died, that was the plague, that was the judgment that broke the back of Pharaoh. That is what issued the liberation of the nation of Israel, God's people, that they would be led through the water into the wilderness where they would worship him on their way to the promised land. And the Israelites would, would be spared the wrath because the blood of a lamb would be painted over the doorframe and the angel of death would pass by and in that, God would claim a people for himself. And so we stop and we consider what Jesus was to face in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, Jesus understands that this time, he knows he will be rejected. He knows he will be handed over, betrayed. He knows that he, the Son of God, will be slaughtered. But that he will rise and that the power of sin and the power of death and the power of Satan himself will be broken in Jerusalem because he doesn't just die in Jerusalem, he rises in Jerusalem. And he doesn't just rise in Jerusalem, he ascends from Jerusalem. And so in Jerusalem, the culmination of God's plan is coming to pass. And Jesus understands this. And Moses and Elijah, who've been working with the nation of Israel, who've been speaking and interceding and teaching about the kingdom that God would bring, about the redemption that would be offered. Here they are, up here, and they see, and they're, they're talking, they're discussing with Jesus the culmination, the bringing together of all these strands, all these foreshadowings, all these types, all these predictions of how God would fulfill his promise to Abraham that all nations on the earth would be blessed through him. And they're speaking about this. But it's Jesus' exodus. His exodus. This isn't just simply his dying, his departing from this life. I submit to you this morning that Jesus here is the representative of Israel. He is Israel. As we'll make clear 
And just like Israel underwent an exodus, so Jesus himself will undergo an exodus and he will lead forth all those who belong to him. You see, he's the culmination of the plan of God. This is what they're discussing. This is what happens after Jesus prayed. But Jesus wasn't alone. Verse 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. The, the, the picture there is not simply drowsiness. Yes, they were drowsy. It's, it's not really fatigued. Literally, the word of God says that Peter and his companions were laden down with sleep. They were burdened with sleep. It's the, it's the language of being yoked. They, they were yoked with sleep. Which leaves me to wonder, was this transfiguration really for the disciples? Or was this really God ministering to Jesus? But nevertheless, the disciples are invited into this space. Even though they're laden down with sleep, perhaps this supernatural sleep which would befitting of other types of revelation that occur throughout the scriptures where Men and women are brought to a point of deep sleep. But they're fighting off sleep because they see something extraordinary is going on. And when they become fully awake, verse 32, the two, they, they see his glory and the two men standing with them. And as the men were leaving, so get the picture here, this is all going to happen quickly. Moses and Elijah are, are, are fading away. They are leaving. As they're leaving, Peter said to him, Master which is really a, a polite term of respect. It is good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. We can really resonate with Peter, can't we? He's seeing something incredible. He's seeing something marvelous, and he, and he just wants to hold on to it. He just wants to stay in the moment. And like many of us, who feel we need to do something. He says, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, literally three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But Luke adds this comment, he did not know what he was saying. This isn't to say he didn't know what to say. As if Luke's saying, you know, he really should have said this. No. He says he did not know what he was saying, which means he didn't, he didn't know the implications of what he was saying. He didn't know the import of what he was saying. Now, in a passage that talks, and in an event, excuse me, an event where Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah, in an event where they're conversing about the exodus that Christ is going to undertake in Jerusalem. When Peter offers to put up a tent, what comes to mind? Those of you who know your Bibles and have been reading your Bibles thoroughly for many, many years, you can't help but think about the wilderness experience without thinking about the tents, specifically the tabernacle, the tent of meeting as well as the Feast of Tabernacles that would later be, be installed to celebrate their time in the wilderness, to celebrate God's provision for them. And so whether Peter's trying to, to, to have an impromptu Feast of Tabernacles or, or, or whether he's so overcome with the glory he's thinking they're going to erect the tabernacle on the mountain, nevertheless, Peter wants to put up a tent. Uh, but not just one tent, he wants to put up three tents. And I suggest to you, this is what he doesn't realize that he is saying. And there's a little clue because he says, Master. Now you're watching someone be changed and transformed before your eyes with a glory that is entirely not of this earth. And you address them as, Sir? Ah, uh, Sir. <laughs> Excuse me. Peter still hasn't put it together. 
And while this is going on, something dramatic is going to happen. But right now, if you're sitting with Peter and you're there on the mountain, you've seen a glimpse of the glory of God in Jesus. You've seen and you've heard the discussion about the promised Redeemer in whom the culmination of God's plan is going to happen. But now, here, definitively, you're going to see God's chosen servant. While Peter is making this suggestion, <coughs> excuse me, while Peter is making this suggestion, a cloud appears. This is the cloud of glory. We're told that the people of Israel were led through the wilderness by the cloud during the day and the pillar of fire during the night. When Moses went up the mountain to meet with God and receive the Ten Commandments, a cloud descended. And the cloud was so terrifying and horrible, the people didn't want any part to do with it. Moses, you go talk to them for us. So while Peter is suggesting this, a cloud appears and covers them. This is the disciples. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from heaven. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. This is similar to the voice that comes from heaven at the baptism, but it's different in a couple of ways. The first way it's different is that this voice is not addressing Jesus, it's addressing the disciples. The second way it's different is instead of being called my beloved, Jesus here is called the one whom I've chosen. And the last difference is the final statement, instead of the one in whom I delight, here it's a command, listen to him. So you can see, here's Peter wrapped up in this glorious moment with Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and he just wants the whole thing to stay, and they each deserve their own tent. And at the moment he makes that suggestion, the glory of God falls in a cloud. When they had finished all the preparations in the wilderness for constructing the tent of meeting and they had put the Ark of the Covenant in there, in the wilderness, in the tent of meeting, they had got it all set up. When they had finished doing that and consecrating themselves, do you know what happened? A cloud of glory descended on the tent. The cloud, which is mentioned three times, appears. The disciples are full of fear, and the voice comes. And this is not, this is not an oh, by the way. <laughs> this is the Father's definitive instruction. This is my son. It's different. There is a divine nature in Jesus. He's not another God, he is God. He is the Word. He is his Son. The one I have chosen. The reason we read Isaiah 42 this morning is so that you could hear that language because that's the exact same language that God uses to predict what he's going to do through his servant. He says, I have chosen my servant. This is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him or, or literally to him you listen. So, yeah, Peter, this is really interesting. You know, you got Moses over there. You got a glorified Elijah over there. Listen to Jesus. Can we just stop for a moment as the church and just kind of reset ourselves and recalibrate and just say, who are we listening to? It's probably not been a great thing that we've made Christian celebrities. 
I don't know that that is really helpful. You see, there is one head of the church. There is one voice that we listen to. It is Christ himself. And if the accounts on your Twitter feed are influencing your life as much as the Son of God, if, if their opinions are, are shaping the way you live as much as the word of Jesus, you've got it mixed up. So it's terrible and it's tragic when people who've had public ministries fall or deconvert. It is horrible and it's very sad and it is troubling. But let's not pretend for a second that God's redemptive plan hangs on these people. He may use them absolutely, but he's only using them to bring you to the Son. It is the Son of God. It is Jesus Christ that you and I need to listen to. It is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who you and I will stand before. It is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in whose power and whose name we serve. Heaven forbid we bring any other name into the world than the name of Jesus Christ. Not having to go at anyone in particular, but can Christian publishers please stop putting people's names on Bibles? Why do I need a man's name or a woman's name on a Bible? Why do I need to know the human being who wrote that? We would do well as a church if we decided to block out the noise, to listen to the voice of Christ, and stop living and swimming in this toxic water of our own opinions. I think it's time that we close our mouths and open our ears and listen to Jesus. Are you with me? I mean, if Peter is so strongly rebuked when he's witnessing the appearance of a glorified Moses and a glorified Elijah, I mean, if there's anyone you want to celebrate on a human level, how about a glorified Moses and a glorified Elijah? But if that calls down a rebuke from heaven in the presence of a cloud and in a voice saying, no, 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 you listen to Jesus, if that's the response that Peter gets, what, what, what are we going to expect? Heaven forbid you and I stand before God and say, well, you know, I really just like that author, you know, and the author, you know, they just made some compelling points. And so I just rejected the, you know, the finished work of Christ and I rejected the testimony of his apostles because, you know, that was just a really, just a really good book and everybody was reading it at the time. We stand and fall in the testimony of the Son. We walk by faith in the Son. This is my Son. Listen to him. In verse 36, when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. <laughs> He's not transfigured anymore. The glory is gone, the moment has passed, but he's still with them. I don't know whether you are just craving for a profound experience of God. I think there is something beautiful and glorious in that. And I pray that he, he gives it to you. I pray that you see him. I, I pray that you have that encounter with the Lord. But I also pray that your faith does not rest on your experiences, but I pray that your faith rests on Jesus Christ. That your confidence lies in him and in his finished work and in his promises. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. You see, when the cloud came down, 
And after the cloud lifted, all they saw was Jesus. They see God's chosen servant. This ought to liberate us as well because it means you and I don't have to be Jesus. You're not gonna be your own redeemer. God's not asking you to make your own exodus. He's not asking you to, to find a way to rise up out of all this that's going on around you. He's not asking you to do that. He's not asking you to, to, to go die for everybody else. You can't do that. You can bear the name of Christ. You can pick up his cross. You can walk and follow after him. You can do that, but he's not asking you to be him. Have we seen Jesus? Have you glimpsed the glory of God? Have you seen the, the one? Have you seen the culmination of God's plan? Have you seen how it all ties together in him, how he had to suffer and how he had to die and how he had to rise and how he has to rule and reign? Have you seen that? Have you seen in him the amen to all of God's promises, the yes? And have you seen in him God's chosen servant? I want you to finish this message by thinking about the humility of Jesus. Because this almighty, all-powerful God came in flesh. He came as one of us. And that's what they see. Moses had prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 that one would come after him who will tell the people the very words of God. Listen to him. This is a direct allusion to that. Deuteronomy 18, 15. Write it down. Look it up. Chris, put it on the screen if it's there. Deuteronomy 18, 15. God said he would bring another prophet who would speak to the people on God's behalf. And that's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to reveal God to you, to show you the Father. And the only way he could do that was by taking your sin. The only way he could do that was by bearing your guilt, your punishment, my, my sin, my shame, by, by taking the curse that's we're all subject to upon himself. That's the only way he could truly reveal the glory of God to us. And in a way much better than Moses ever could, he initiates a covenant with God's people, agreement by which they become his people. But this covenant is not tablets of stone. This covenant is in Christ himself. He is a covenant. So that if you are in him and if you belong to him, then you are at peace with God. And there is no condemnation and there's nothing to fear. And when he returns, you will be transformed and you will be made like him. We'll end here. I've often thought about this passage and thought, wow, this is just crazy. I have no idea what to make of all this. I don't know that I'm a whole lot closer. <laughs> but one thing that did come to mind was, gee, I would have loved to just talk to the disciples. I wonder what they would say. And if you caught yourself wondering that and say, you know, if I could just sit down and interview Peter or James and John, what would they say? If that's you, you're in, you're in luck. Because we actually have that. In his second epistle, the apostle Peter, he knows he's about to die. He's about to make his exodus, he says. But he wants the people he's been ministering to to always remember these things. And this is what he says. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty Peter says, I didn't invent this. 
didn't come to me in the shower. I saw it. Verse 17, he received, that's Jesus, he received honor and glory from God the Father. You say, of course, at the resurrection. No, 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 no. When the voice came to him from the majestic glory, that's him talking about the cloud, saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Verse 18, we ourselves have heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Did you hear what he's saying? At the risk of oversimplifying, if Peter were here today communicating these ideas, He'd want you to know, I really saw this. And that God would do this for Jesus. Gives him great glory and honor. And he said, but you, you wouldn't just have my testimony. He said, you also have the prophets and you also have the writings. And he would tell you, they're completely reliable. The word of God is, is infallible. And the word of God, when times get dark like they are right now, the word of God will be a light. But Peter's not just passing out torches. He's not just saying, go home and read your Bible. That'll be your light. See you later. No, no, no. He says, look to the word. It'll be your light until. There's an until. Until. Until the morning star rises in your hearts. The morning star is none other than Christ himself. You see, right now we have the lights, the lamp of the word of God. We have the testimony of the apostles. We have the ministry of the Holy Spirit which illuminates our hearts and minds. But one day the morning star will appear and the morning star is called the morning star because it means daylight has come and the night is over. And when Christ appears, this night will be done. And the new day will have dawned. It's coming. It's happening. Be ready. Let's pray. Lord, would we hear you? May we lay aside all the other voices. May your spirit tune us to the word of Christ. May we rest on him. Lord, would you comfort and encourage us and strengthen us in these days? We ask for your purposes and your glory. Amen.